Anytime the topic of artificial intelligence comes up, two things dominate the discussion. It's the technology of the future, and China is ahead of the U.S. Whatever the reality, the White House earlier this year launched a National Intelligence Research Resource Task Force. It's run out of the Office of Science and Technology Policy and the National Science Foundation. For a progress report on what the task force has been up to, we turn to the Senior Advisor for Translation, Innovation, and Partnerships at the National Science Foundation, Dr. Erwin Gyanchandani. Dr. Gyanchandani, good to have you on. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Tom. Tell us about this National Intelligence Research Resource Task Force. It's a mouthful. And what's the charter and what have you been up to so far? Sure, absolutely. It is definitely a mouthful. So the AI, I'm just going to say AI for short, the AI Research Resource Task Force is something that really was chartered by Congress as part of the National Defense Authorization Act of 2021. So the bill became law early this year. And as part of that bill, there's a National AI Initiative Act. And as part of that act, there is a call for the federal government to stand up this task force to be able to really explore what a shared computing and data infrastructure that could provide AI researchers and students across all disciplines of science and engineering with access to a holistic advanced computing ecosystem. What could that look like? And so the goal of the task force is really to do that sort of legwork of trying to be able to understand what can go into the design and the implementation of an AI research resource that could be available to the broader country that could really democratize access to this capability for all of AI research and development and education as well. And then to put that forward, that implementation plan, that governance plan, that sustainability plan, put that forward to the president and Congress to determine what the next steps might look like. Uh, so the task force launched back in June of this year. And we are sort of on a bit of a shot clock, if you will, to try to develop the implementation plan, get a first draft and interim report within a year of that date. Uh, so sometime next spring, early summer, and then have a final report in place by sometime next fall. So November or December of 2022, if you will. And of course, the immediate question comes up since this was part of an NDAA, but that's not always fully defense-related items that end up in the NDAA. Does this idea encompass both military and intelligence uses along with civilian uses, or is this more civilian-oriented that you envision? Well, so that's a great question, uh, Tom, and I think that that's really something that will be up for the task force to help define scope. I will say that Congress was really, I think, mostly focused on how do we democratize access to the cyber infrastructure, that is data sets, high quality representative data sets, that is an understanding of advanced computing capabilities. You know, if you think about AI today, what fuels the AI revolution that we're seeing today, it's access to data and it's access to advanced computing, whether it be high-performance computing or supercomputers or access to cloud computing or hybrid models of computing or new and emergent forms of computing like neuromorphic computing and, and so forth, right? And so I think they were really interested in trying to see how could the broad constellation of academic researchers and students, so all different institution types, uh, research primary institutions, community colleges, minority-serving institutions, how could they get access to these sort of core critical elements, if you will, to be able to fuel AI research and development? And in particular, how could we ensure that 
anyone, anywhere, regardless of what community you're in, regardless of what institution you're affiliated with, regardless of your own personal background, you could have access to this type of a resource. So I think that your question about military versus civilian is a great one. I think we initially, anyways, in the task force discussions are very focused on the civilian access to this type of a resource, but we are certainly trying to keep an open mind in terms of our deliberations as we move forward. We are speaking with Dr. Erwin Yanchandani. He is the Senior Advisor for Translation, Innovation, and Partnerships at the National Science Foundation. And what about the data and access to data? Because a big challenge for many researchers is simply having what is the latest and greatest data set that is both useful to what it is they're researching and also has the lack of bias or the inclusion that is needed in so many AI applications. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked about that, Tom. And I'm so glad you asked about sort of bias and personal privacy actually is another factor here, thinking about civil liberties and civil rights too, when we think about the data sets or just more generally the research that's enabled through this type of a research resource. And so as we're having these conversations on the task force, one of the things foremost in our mind is what are the plans that would allow us to be able to provide access to data through the resource? But at the same time, how do we ensure that any recommendations also take into account responsible privacy enhancing techniques and capabilities and approaches? And how do we ensure that whatever we do, there are ground rules in place for user-based permissions, there are ground rules in place for data portability, and there are ground rules in place for de-identification of any personally identifiable or other privacy elements in the data sets themselves. And, you know, it may well be the case that sensitive data might not be provided through the resource given legal and policy restrictions, but anything that is provided has to be subject to these privacy enhancing techniques and these sorts of governance attributes that I just described. And do you envision people coming to this resource when it is established at some point in the future and using it for their own commercial purposes, if that's the purpose of it, since a lot of it will have originated as a taxpayer resource? Or is it primarily aimed, do you think, at federal needs for artificial intelligence? Yeah, so Tom, that's a great question. And I think it's one that we want to see sort of where the task force goes over the course of its deliberations over the next few months. I should note that all of the meetings in the task force are open and public. This is a Federal Advisory Act committee. And so they're noticed. We put out notice notifications in the Federal Register. We really want folks to engage with us in the meetings. We've had two now that were each about a half day to three quarters of a day long. And we had a number of folks from beyond the task force who attended and asked questions and so forth. And so I think getting that diversity of perspectives is really critical. The other thing that I'll also note that's very relevant is we just issued a request for information. Actually, not just. We issued it at the end of July, and we recently extended that RFI period through the beginning of October. And so we're really looking, again, for inputs from all different stakeholders, all different perspectives, regardless of sector, regardless of background, to help inform our thinking and to really come back to your question about who should have access to this. This particular resource. I will say that Congress chartered NSF and OSTP, and NSF is in the business of supporting, uh, you know, we're a federal funding agency that largely supports research at academic institutions. But we will see where the inputs that we get and where the deliberations of the task force take us. And are you thinking about the sustainability of this effort? Because over the years, I've seen a lot of these types of things launch 
a number of years ago. There was data.gov, for example, and performance.gov, and this, that, and the other.gov. And they start strong with a lot of fanfare, but then the effort, frankly, fades. And data.gov is still there, and it's been developed, but it's not what I think anyone envisioned when they first launched it. So what about the long-term sustainability of this type of effort? Couldn't agree more, Tom, about the importance of sustainability for this type of an effort. For this to really have, I think, the long-term impact that we wanted to have and for it to allow the U.S. to continue to be a leader when it comes to innovations in AI research as well as education, we really need to think hard and long and fast about what is that sustainability plan. And that sustainability plan Tom, is not just about the set of folks who might come together and the set of resources that might come together. Remember, NSF, the Department of Energy, other agencies in the federal government, we're already funding some of these types of resources, advanced computing capabilities, access to data sets, and so forth. This is in some sense about trying to stitch together some of those existing investments and new ones into the future. And so as we do that, thinking about that sustainability piece, how do you ensure constant refreshing of the compute capacity and capabilities, for instance, right? That is all a factor that we're going to be focusing on as we look into this fall and into the early part of next year with the task force discussions. And so eventually you envision federal entities that have large-scale computing capabilities being able to maybe contribute time. Potentially, very much so. That's very much a possibility. Contribute their resources to this type of a, a national AI research resource, be able to allow for allocations on those types of resources and so forth. Absolutely. That's certainly within the realm of possibility. And one final question on the realm of possibilities. Could it also include a kind of commons where people that wanted to do work that could be in the open source area could contribute their learnings to a kind of commons or, you know, platform that makes those new discoveries available to anyone as an open source basis? Yeah. So I think, Tom, that's an excellent question. And it's actually one that briefly came up in one of our recent task force meetings. And indeed, it's something that we will be looking at closely too, is this notion of as you're conducting the research, how do you then in turn make the results of that research available for broader consumption? And in particular, the data sets that might emerge. I mean, that is actually a key aspect of reproducibility and replicability of research these days. And so it's certainly something that's at the top of the minds of the task force members. And so ironically, this could greatly expand AI work, but at the same time reduce duplication of effort. Could be. Absolutely. Dr. Erwin Dani is Senior Advisor for Translation, Innovation, and Partnerships at the U.S. National Science Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll check back with you in another year and see how it's going. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union 
where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about but that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain 
of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zell. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial.